A very good morning to you. Grab a, grab a seat. We'll crack on. It is lovely to see you all here this morning. It's bright and sunny. Dave, we even had the doors open earlier on, which is a first. I think it's the first time we've been warm in here for a while. Um, so it's very, very welcome, as are you all. If you're new here or you're visiting, um, the uh, guys, I think Howard and Steph, were out on the welcome desk, but they'd love to connect with you. Come and find us. We'd love to connect with you and, and help you connect with the body of Christ, whether it's this one or uh, wherever it may be that the Lord is calling you. So um, do come and say hello. We'd love to um, catch up with you. We're in uh, Lent, we're in the season of Lent, and this Lent we are journeying together not only towards Easter and the cross and the life and the hope of the resurrection that lies uh, beyond Good Friday, we're also at the same time journeying together through the scriptures, and, and sort of Sundays at the moment are a little bit like a pause on, those, uh, on that journey uh, as we together gather together and pick up the threads of justice that we see woven through the pages of the scriptures. And uh, drawing along, uh, drawing from and sort of walking through and working through uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury's um, Lent book for this year, it's called Embracing Justice, it's by Isabel Hamley. Last week we looked together at justice in the creation accounts from uh, Genesis. This morning, we are going to attempt to look at justice and freedom from Exodus. And then over the coming weeks, we'll hopefully get to justice uh, in the context of community, justice as incarnational, justice uh, and power in, in the shape of the cross, and justice in light of the resurrection. And the hope, really, is that all of these together will kind of weave some sort of textured tapestry of how God longs to work with humanity, with all of us, to bring justice, wholeness, and salvation to individuals, to communities, and indeed the world in which we live. But for now, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. The words should appear mysteriously behind me. I have actually no idea what goes on behind me. I think you could all be watching a subtitled movie. Um, so uh, anything could be happening. But anyway, uh, assuming it's Genesis 3, we'll start in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over there and see this strange sight, why this bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk 
and Hani, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that this is, what, this is who I have sent, it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? Then, then what will I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Last week, if you were here, we looked at uh, justice through the lenses and from uh, the Genesis creation accounts that, that proclaimed all of humankind as having been made in the image of God. And in essence, what we were trying to do was um, sort of lay the building blocks, if you like, the foundations, really, the, of any talk of justice around the fact that first and foremost, if there is going to be any kind of justice, we need to see the other. We need to see one another as made in the image of God. Because when we do that, uh, the first thing that we see, when the first thing that we see in the other is somebody who's made in the image of God, what we see, first and foremost, is not their difference. It's not their strangeness. It's not their unfamiliarity. Uh, what we see is our commonality. What we see is our shared experience. We, we see our shared humanity. What we, we see is the, the wonder of our unity um, as both ourselves and the others and the other are before anything else and above anything else made in the image of God. And that's really an amazing starting place and, and, and in many ways really could just be an ending place too because the reality is if we could all just work on that one single thing and put it into practice in all of our encounters, the world would be a very different place. Indeed, uh, perhaps the world beyond Genesis chapters 1 and 2 would have been a whole different place if our forebears had chosen to start with a similar kind of premise. Uh, but as we know from a cursory reading of the opening chapters of Genesis, uh, the sublime glory of creation is very quickly marred and scarred. And from Genesis chapter 3, uh, things very quickly, very rapidly break down. Uh, and the trajectory that is sort of set in motion uh, from Genesis chapter 3 spirals out of control as, as conflict and injustice and violence spread. And, and human beings struggle uh, to walk with God. They struggle to live well with one another in what has now become a, a broken and a fallen world. And uh, what this brokenness looks like, it reaches a, a kind of whole new level of degradation and despair uh, only by the time we get to chapter four. I mean, it doesn't take very long for things to unravel spectacularly. Uh, and in Genesis chapter four, we see the account of Cain and Abel, where 
not only do we see the extent of the brokenness and the damage that's been done as Cain murders his brother, but also in so short a space of time, we've, we've fallen um, from seeing one another as made in the image of God to now killing the other for being made in the image of God. And Genesis 4 is, is not only about the breakdown um, in a relationship between brothers that results in Abel's death, um, it's about the further breakdown in relationship between humanity and the divine as Cain tries to destroy the, the very thing that reflects the image and the glory of God. And the next many chapters of Genesis uh, graphically illustrate the self-same um, problem, the same movement away from what God had originally planned and intended in Genesis 1 and 2. And so um, we've got the story of Noah and the mysterious goings-on of the Nephilim in chapter 6, all of which results in the flood and the destruction of the earth. Um, but it's not long before the brokenness sort of emerges again uh, through things like the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, uh, the story of Hagar that we saw, uh, we looked at a few weeks ago, um, Abraham's treatment of his wife, uh, Sarah, and on and on it goes. And, and finally, by the end of Genesis, the people of Israel um, have now settled in Egypt. Uh, they've become effectively economic uh, migrants. They're displaced by, uh, originally by famine, and they find themselves relying on the protection of you know, Joseph, he of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame, um, who's one of their own. I mean, Joseph's one of, he's not Egyptian, um, He's now in Egypt, and Joseph is working as sort of Pharaoh's right-hand man. And by the time you get to the end of Genesis, things are looking sort of okay, relatively speaking. Um, the Israelites have settled in Egypt, uh, and mostly because of Joseph and the favor shown to him by Pharaoh. Pharaoh likes Joseph, and so um, the Israelites are effectively living in relative peace, and they're there, they're in Egypt, and they're enjoying all the, the fish and the cucumbers and the, and the melons and the onions and the garlic. Um, it's all there in Numbers. Uh, see, but you'd wish you'd read Numbers now. Who knew that there were cucumbers in the book of Numbers? Because none of you have ever read it. They are there. Um, however, I digress. Um, and then uh, we turn into the book of Exodus, and uh, by chapter one of Exodus, everything has changed. Uh, and we really don't have time to go into it all now, so perhaps between uh, now and next Sunday, you could give an hour or so of your time to read in the 40-odd uh, chapters of Exodus. I mean, it's a pretty epic tale, of course. It's a cosmic story of the battle of good against evil. It's a classic portrayal of the dramatic liberation of an oppressed people. It's, it's no surprise that it's caught the imaginations of, of writers and storytellers and filmmakers and Andrew Lloyd Webber and his mate. Uh, but not only is it epic, you know, it deeply resonates with our sense of, of, of justice, of what's right and what's not right. Um, Exodus is also prophetic. It's a kind of, it's a type, if you like, or it's a metaphor 
um, of God's and for God's entire redemptive plan that he outlines in Genesis chapter 3 when we got into the mess that we got into in the first place and the mess that we're still living through uh, today uh, as a result of the fall. And so with all of that as a bit of a backdrop, uh, this morning I wanted to take a look at uh, three things. Exodus and the people of Israel. Uh, what did all of this mean to them then? Uh, secondly, Exodus and the other. What does all of this mean to those around us uh, today? And then lastly, Exodus and us. Uh, what does any of this mean for us uh, now? So, Exodus and the people of Israel. So, for the people of Israel, by the time we get to Exodus chapter 1, Exodus chapter 1 pretty much summarizes the, the, the state of affairs pretty uh, graphically. But by the time we get to Exodus chapter 1, things are not looking good. Uh, the Israelites now find themselves, they're in Egypt, they're still in Egypt, but now they are living as aliens in a strange land uh, in Egypt. Joseph, who was effectively their protector, has, 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 has long since died. Years and years have gone by. There's a new pharaoh. And any past privilege that they may have had has long been forgotten. And they find themselves vulnerable and uh, despised and enslaved. Uh, basically, what's happened is fearing that the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, as they're called here, they're, are becoming too numerous, uh, that they might one day rise up again and, and, and join against, you know, join with uh, Egypt's enemies against Egypt. Uh, the Egyptians, under Pharaoh's rule and his command, effectively turn on the Israelites and force them to become Pharaoh's uh, slaves to build Egypt's empire. It's a vast empire, and it's an empire, it should be noted, that is fundamentally not seeing the other first and foremost, is made in the image of God. It's an empire that sees the other merely as a commodity to be used and abused for maximum profit and maximum advantage. Uh, Egypt, you know, may bring significant advances to the world, but it does so at a great cost to human life and to the sanctity of humanity. That's something we see echoed throughout empire building throughout history. Again, uh, back in chapter one, um, taking uh, the people captive and treating them as slaves doesn't seem to satisfy Pharaoh. Um, and so what happens in chapter one is we witness this first genocide, this first ethnic cleansing, attempt at ethnic cleansing, if you like, as, as Pharaoh orders all the Hebrew baby boys be drowned in the Nile. And it's into all of this brutality, this injustice, this bondage, this oppression that God calls Moses, himself a, a Hebrew um, who escaped certain death by being, as we know, famously rescued uh, from the Nile, um, somewhat ironically by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. And for the first 40 years, you know, you've seen the movie, uh, first 40 years of his life, Moses is brought up in Pharaoh's palace. Uh, it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, uh, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. So he's had a privileged upbringing. First 40 years of his life are uh, 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 pretty fine. 
and everything for him is going along um, well. Uh, everything is going along well for everyone in Ashura, an Israelite slave, until one day what happens is Moses goes from the palace and he goes to visit his own people and he sees one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. And so Moses goes to this chap's defense and avenges him by killing the Egyptian. And uh, he becomes afraid that he's going to get found out. So what happens is Moses flees to Midian. Um, and Midian is sort of uh, this little place on the backside of nowhere, really. Uh, and what happens is Moses then spends the next 40 years of his life, his, you know, because it's the Bible, it's 40, 40, and 40, everything's in 40 years. Um, he spends the next 40 years of his life tending sheep. Uh, and this is where we picked up the story in Exodus chapter 3, um, God's call on Moses to go back to Egypt and to lead God's people up out of slavery and into freedom. And what follows, as I'm sure you'll all be more than aware, is, is this epic battle uh, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness over the people of Israel and the rulers of um, Egypt. And again, we're, of course, we're in the Old Testament and there is no getting away from the violence and the brutality and the devastation and the pain of it all as Egypt is bombarded with a relentless plague after plague after plague. Um, just as we're witnessing even now um, in Russia and Ukraine, uh, innocent people suffer you know, at the hands of despotic rulers. Um, had Pharaoh taken time to see the other as made in the image of God? Had Pharaoh, um, and in fact, I think it could be argued, had Joseph uh, not set up systems and structures that commoditized human beings and effectively dehumanized humankind, um, this whole situation probably would never have arisen. But in the chilling um, final plague on the firstborn, which is kind of reminiscent of Pharaoh's decision to drown all Hebrew males in the Nile, and is also at the same time like a, a pointer, uh, points ahead to the death of God's own son on the cross, um, the blood of the Passover lamb daubed on the lintels and doorposts uh, marks the beginnings of the Exodus. And finally, God's people are set free uh, from the oppression of being enslaved in Egypt, and they begin their still long journey uh, through the Red Sea, uh, through the wandering, you know, the wilderness wanderings, uh, and into eventually uh, the Promised Land. So, uh, what of this Exodus narrative and the other? How does this? How does this story? How does all of this? Uh, Exodus stuff, you know, probably more familiar to most of us uh, as the Prince of Egypt rather than Exodus, but how, how does this story impact our understanding of justice and injustice around us today? Well, firstly, uh, slavery is not a thing of the past. Um, according to IJM, the International Justice Mission, modern slavery affects, affects over 40 million people worldwide today. Uh, one, it's estimated one in 130 women and girls are living 
in slavery today. Women and girls are disproportionately victims of exploitation and slavery. Uh, one in four victims of modern slavery are children, with children being vulnerable to some of the worst forms of modern day slavery, like being trafficked into forced labor, from farms, uh, fishing boats, and into the online sexual exploitation of children. It's estimated that 90% of forced labor takes place in the private economy, in homes, in businesses, and in global supply chains. In fact, again, according to IJM, 77% of UK businesses believe there is a likelihood of slavery at some stage in their supply chain, which includes some of our most used items like coffee, electronics, and clothing. And so this isn't something that belongs to a bygone era, the dim and distant past of ancient Egypt. This same oppression, these same abuses, this same ability to not see the other as made in the image of God, all of which we see being meted out by Pharaoh, is happening in our world today on our watch. And whether we like it or not, whether it's intentional or unintentional, the reality is that many of us, if not all of us, are supporting it, contributing to it, and remaining complicit with it. Um, through things like our lifestyle choices, our purchasing power, our investment decisions, and so on and so on. But that's another talk. So, how does this story impact our understanding of justice um, and injustice around us today? Have a quick look at Genesis, uh, Exodus 3, verse 9. This is uh, verse 9, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, so now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Perhaps this morning on the holy ground that is this school hall. Uh, perhaps God is calling us both corporately and individually to go and set his people free. Uh, I don't have time to go into it here, but uh, very quickly, I, I just love the way uh, Moses responds um, because it's exactly how I imagine I would respond. Uh, here he is, there's a burning bush there's the voice of God himself, um, all of which you kind of would think would be fairly impressive and fairly convincing in terms of, okay, I get it. I mean, it's a little surprising. Perhaps it's not for Moses. Maybe this happens on a regular basis. But how does Moses respond? Well, firstly, um, in verse 11 of chapter 3, he thinks he's insignificant. Uh, he says, but this is 11, three, chapter 3, verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Little old me. Insignificant. Uh, secondly, he's insecure. Have a look at uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? And thirdly, he thinks he's inadequate. Chapter 4, verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Which is interesting when you read Acts chapter 7, because he's a man of 
uh, powerful in, in, in speech and, and action. So it's like, make your mind up, which are you? Like, you know, can you speak? I think 40 years of maybe being in Midian, he'd ended up talking like a sheep. Um, anyway, here's Moses, and he's feeling insignificant, insecure, and inadequate. That's the way he responds to God. And these are three perfectly reasonable responses, three perfectly normal reactions, and clearly three perfectly qualifying characteristics for the job at hand. And so, yes, in the face of all the injustices we see, we may feel insignificant, insecure, and inadequate. Well, according to this text, all that does is make us even more suited to the task. And then finally, and very quickly, um, what does uh, Exodus say to us? How do these verses from Exodus impact our understanding of what it means to be enslaved? Um, well, whilst the experience of the Israelites then and the experience of too many people in the world today is of actual um, slavery and oppression, Ephesians 6 reminds us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And while most of us, as far as I'm aware, are not um, making bricks out of you know, sand and straw to build pyramids, or working in sweatshops, or living as victims of traffickers. Um, the reality is that far too many of us are living as if enslaved. Uh, far too many of us live our lives under the oppressive, tyrannical rule of behaviors, and addictions, and ways of thinking, um, all of which we are desperate, 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 desperate to be freed from. For some of us, no matter how hard we've tried uh, to take back control, to get, um, to be in charge of our own lives. I mean, you'd think that adults should be able to be in charge of their own lives. The reality is, for so many of us, that these behaviors and these addictions and these ways of thinking just keep coming um, on a relentless tide, leaving us um, feeling powerless and defeated and ultimately in bondage, captive to some other rule and reign captive to some other principality and power. And that could be um, anything. I mean, it, there are so many ways in which we uh, lend ourselves to other agendas to get through our days and to get through our weeks. It could be, it could be anything from a um, need to just get through the day with our a preferred drug of choice, be that nicotine, alcohol, um, weed, whatever it is that helps me forget uh, and just numb and get through and get by. All the way through to more compulsive behaviors, um, like I don't know, um, pornography, gaming addictions, gambling. Um, there are so many things vying for our attention, desperately trying to get us to be addicted. Um, and succeeding so incredibly well. And that goes all the way through to the more socially acceptable but equally unhealthy behaviors like, I don't know, um, our relationship with social media, um, our relationship with money or food or exercise or the truth, 
or our image or our obsession with what other people say or what other people think. I mean, I don't know. There are so many forms of slavery. There are so many ways in which so many of us are held in captivity. But just as God sees the misery of his people in Egypt, God has seen the misery of his people here and now. And just as God provided a Moses, and more importantly, a Passover lamb, so God has given us his son, Jesus Christ, that uh, we may have life and we may have life to the full. John 10, 10 says, the thief comes only to steal, to kill and destroy. I, Jesus, have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And so my question uh, as we end this morning is, um, do you feel like you are living life to the full? Uh, because Jesus came that we might live life. We might have life and live it to the full. And so it may be that you're here this morning. Uh, it may be that you've never considered Jesus. Um, you've, uh, you've never thought about him. You've never thought about giving your life to him so that you can experience this life uh, to the full. Well, if that's you, we'd love to, we'd love to pray for you. Uh, it may be that you're here this morning and you know and love Jesus and you, you've known and loved Jesus for like donkey's years. But for some reason, there's stuff in your life that you just cannot shake. There are things in your life that cause you to feel so much shame that you don't even name it to the person sitting next to you or around you. Um, you just can't get free. Well, we'd love to pray for you this morning. You don't have to name it if you don't want to. But let's just pray, pray for you. Um, and it may be that you are set free in a moment. It may be that you will have to struggle through the wilderness of that pattern of behavior and that addiction um, for the next 40 years. But God is your defender and he is fighting for you. And we want to stand alongside you as your brothers and sisters in Christ and stand with you and fight for you too. Uh, some of you um, may be feeling the call of Moses. It all sounds very grand. It's not really. You know, you know that you want things to change uh, in the lives of others, in the lives of those who are being oppressed. Uh, but maybe you feel insignificant, maybe you feel insecure, maybe you feel inadequate. That's all good. That sounds like the uh, job specification. So um, we'd love to pray for you too. Um, why don't you stand? I'm going to have the band back.